You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, so my role is to introduce our esteemed speaker today. It's great to see such a, a nice turnout. Uh, Vladimir uh, Dubovic is an associate professor in the Department of International Relations and also director of the Center for International Studies at the I.I. Mechnikov National University in Odessa, Ukraine. Yeah. Um, he's an expert on uh, security issues, on Ukraine, of course, on transatlantic relations, Black Sea security, um, and he's published a, he's written a book called Ukraine and European Security. He's also written numerous articles on U.S.-Ukraine relations, on regional and international security issues, and on Ukraine's foreign policy. Right. Uh, he's currently uh, holding a visiting professorship at Tufts University, where he's teaching, and so we're grateful for him to uh, take a break from his teaching to come out and speak to us today. Um, he's conducted research at the Kennan Institute, uh, with which many of you are familiar, in Washington, D.C., at George Washington University. Uh, he's also taught at uh, Washington University in Seattle, and um, he is um, uh, uh, talk today is entitled The Biggest War Since 1945, Why and How Russia's Invasion of Ukraine Matters for European Security. Right. So please join me in giving him a nice, warm Wisconsin welcome. Thank you, Jack. I forgot to mention that you know me for a number of years now, maybe like 20 years or so. <laughs> and you've been to Odessa, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> as far as I remember. Host, if anyone, uh, yeah, the, the full disclosure. <laughs> I've been to Odessa, it's nasty, right? <laughs> but thank you. Thank you both, uh, Jennifer and uh, Ted, uh, for having me here today. It's a great pleasure and it's a great privilege. And uh, I should say that uh, it's my first time here at Madison. Uh, and uh, I've been to Wisconsin, though, once uh, or in Milwaukee, but not to University of Wisconsin-Madison. So. It's a great pleasure. I've heard so many good things, and uh, so far I'm not disappointed. Uh, even the weather, you know, like, <laughs> it's not disappointing. It's uh, what you expect when you come here in the in the beginning of February. So it's all good. Um, yeah. That being said, of course, uh, you know, it's really a great uh, privilege for me to be addressing such an audience. And uh, uh, when I was getting ready for this talk uh, just minutes ago, uh, I was thinking, like, should I sit down or should I not? I definitely should be doing this, you know, standing up and talking to you so I can see you better and you can see me too as well because it's a really good turnout and I'm really pleased to see that. To see that. And of course, it's not, it's not for me because they don't know me, most of you, but uh, it's for the topic because Ukraine still, you know, catches some attention that's good, you know, and grabs some attention. And that's really uh, good for us to see Ukrainians, you know, it's war, war, warm feeling when I, when I see that people are showing up, people are still paying attention. Because uh, the trend, as you know, is often uh, otherwise. You know, it's a long war already. It's uh, over 11 months. So it's going to be full year since the uh, start of this uh, full-scale war. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, that's why it's quite natural, maybe sometimes, to expect people to stop paying attention, because other things happening in the world, because other things happening in people's lives, and people, you know, move on. And that's, uh, that's only natural, I think, for a lot of people around the world. You know, in some places in the world, you know, Ukraine and Russia are so distant. Why should we care at all? And uh, that's why I'm doing this talk, you know, <laughs> to explain, like, why, why should they care? And uh, we're trying to continue to keep people like myself, you know, we're trying to keep, uh, you know, the war uh, on the, the horizon, you know, on a, on a, on a, 
know, for some, but people who still care, you know, to still understand that something is happening there, and big things are happening. And uh, personally, of course, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal for me, I mean, for any Ukrainian. It's a kind of a war that you cannot be Ukrainian and not be affected by it. You mm -hmm. know. So everyone is affected, you know. I mean, uh, you have people who are actually bombed and shelled, you have people who are lost, losing their jobs or lost their jobs. You have people who are worrying about losing their jobs tomorrow, maybe economy going under completely without international assistance. Actually, Ukrainian economy would probably go under in the circumstances, but right now it's actually still staying you know, on the surface afloat. But, you know, thank you, I mean, guys. And then I'll, I'll probably say thank you a number of times in my presentation because, of course, uh, the international assistance specifically of this country from this country coming flowing to Ukraine, be it financial or humanitarian or, of course, weapon supply. It's, it's a huge, big deal to us. I mean, frankly, I mean, with all the heroism and uh, resilience of, like, Ukrainian society and people and Ukrainian military, uh, we wouldn't, probably wouldn't have a chance to stand, you know, against the stronger Russian military machine because, you, you know, only with heroism and resilience you cannot fight uh, the Russian military with sticks and stones. And yeah. <laughs> so you actually do need... No. Uh, very serious weapons, and we've been providing those weapons to have a chance to survive. So, myself, uh, I, um, I, I, I got away from my hometown of Odessa on the Black Sea because Russia was advancing you know, earlier in, in the year, yes, last year, and I got to Western Ukraine. I actually spent most of the last year in a little town in Western Ukraine, like many people did. Uh, actually, for years as a scholar, I was listening about situation in other countries, and I uh, knew the term IDP, internally displaced person. But I didn't quite understand what it means. Like, and now I was one. I actually was one. And many of my friends and many of my colleagues and my family members, they also became IDPs or refugees, meaning outside of Ukraine. So, like I say, you know, for a big nation, reasonably large nation of Ukraine, uh, which is about 40 million people, everyone is affected. So it's a big deal to us, of course, what's happening. Right now, as you know, there is uh, another uh, round of hardship. Uh, not only for the military on the on a, on a battlefront, but also for the people away from from the front line, because Russia is uh, sending missiles and drones and attacking Ukrainian uh, infrastructure, uh, including like energy energy infrastructure, and that's why people suffer through terrible power outages. And when you say power outage, uh, you need to understand what comes with it. It's not just that you don't have like light; it means also you don't have like uh, water supply, because often it comes together. Heating, too. No heating. In the middle of winter, which is kind of harsh, maybe not kind of Wisconsin weather that we have outside today, but still harsh, even in Odessa, in the south. You know, you don't, you don't have anything. You don't have internet, you don't have Wi-Fi. So that becomes a problem even for us uh, when we do, like, teaching. Because when the war started, actually, February 24th, we almost immediately continued teaching online. I did. Like, last year, in the spring, I did two courses online. Last year in the fall, I did another two courses online as well, including already being here in the Boston area. Uh, since October 9th, I came on October 9th, so I continued those courses. But now there is also, also a question like, can we do it online? Because people don't have electricity, you know? People don't have access to internet. Like, can students and, and professors meet together in that virtual room, you know, learning room and learning space when you, when you don't have Wi-Fi or internet? So it's becoming another problem. So. But on the battleground, as you probably know, uh, the fight is ongoing. Uh, it's, a, it's a long uh, front line. It's hundreds and hundreds of kilometers or miles. It doesn't really matter in that case because it's so long. 
you know, someone actually early in the war did an exercise and they put for visibility uh, uh, the, the direct line, the, you know, the, the length of the front line on the map of Europe. And it went from Warsaw to Madrid. You know, that's, that's the length of the front line that you have between Ukraine and Russia. And that's not even uh, mentioning, that's not even, uh, you know, uh, considering like, for instance, Belarus, which is another thing. And unfortunately in this war, uh, the situation with Belarus and uh, you know, the, the leader of Belarus, Lukashenko, taking position that he took and allowing, of course, uh, Russian troops to attack us from north as well through Belarus was additional problem for us, major challenge for us, because our front line was big enough anyway, uh, and our border with Russia was long enough anyway. Uh, but uh, now with uh, Belarus being involved, it's even longer. So for Ukrainian troops now, it's, it's a problem. Like, where do you concentrate your troops? because you can accept a strike anywhere. Right now we have a new wave of conversations actually about uh, uh, maybe Russia trying to, to do a strike uh, from Belarus or through Belarus or via Belarus, even if only to distract Ukrainian troops, that we would have to take troops out of Donbas, for instance, or south near Kherson and send them towards Belarus to defend against the potential Russian invasion there. And of course, Ukrainian reserves are not that massive. so. That's going to be a problem. So the war isn't going, you know, and uh, Ukraine is uh, still showing uh, ability to fight back. Uh, Ukraine is still showing resilience uh, that it showed for 11 months. And by resilience, I mean not just military, primarily military, of course, they're paying the highest price, but also the entire country's society. You know, uh, you have uh, been wondering, like, what would happen to Ukraine if, if Russia attacks in the way and the scale that they did. And people were comparing, uh, let's say, Afghanistan to Ukraine. And still do, some, some still do. But uh, definitely between August of 21 and, let's say, February of 22, people were having this conversation, like, what's going to happen to Ukraine? It's going to unravel, like, immediately, like Afghanistan did. And it didn't, as you see, you know, as you can see. You know, contrary to President Ashraf Ghani, who just jumped on his plane and left, President Zelensky stayed, you know. And that was a big deal, of course, you know. And uh, you, you, you're most aware, of course, uh, of that phrase that he probably did actually say or not, uh, but he, it's credited to him that he said, I don't need a right, uh, yeah, I need ammunition, <laughs> when he was offered. But that's the case, that's, that's true, that's a fact that he was offered to be evacuated, mm -hmm. fetched out of the Kyiv when Russian troops were approaching Kyiv, and around Kyiv there were major you know, groups actually targeting him for physical elimination, assassination. He was told by you know, American partners and counterparts like we can we can actually get you to safety like western ukraine maybe like warsaw or something but away from 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 the danger and he said no i'm not leaving so so that was very important and uh, i mean uh, in that particular respect the resilience is still there if russia thought that maybe destroying uh, power stations and putting ukraine in the dark and in the cold would somehow uh, create a, a you know a rebellion a revolt apparently some people in kremlin had this idea that you know the ukrainians would be so struggling so mightily that they would come to the streets and uh, you know disrupt everything in the, in the country and demand for the president to sign a peace treaty immediately with Russia. <laughs> you know what a bizarre idea. I'm actually actually just showing again and again how in Russia, while paying attention to Ukraine because Ukraine is important to them, they actually never paid enough attention to understand Ukraine. They never had the effort to actually understand Ukraine properly and what's happening there. You know the political dynamics. The major political players, the public attitudes, you know, the military readiness, for instance, because it was much higher, of course, Ukrainian military readiness than what Russians accepted. 
So that's what you have uh, with the war. Of course, we are getting all these weapons, and that's um, that's how it is. Uh, no one wants uh, weapons just for weapons' sake. You know, if we can, uh, you know, solve this war tomorrow, and uh, our people can be living in peace, we wouldn't be needing any F-16s or Abrams tanks. No. So, but we need them to survive, because people have been saying for a long time, through this 11 months, Russia can stop this war, any moment. Russia. But Ukraine cannot stop fighting because we start we are fighting for our survival, you know. Because now it's quite obvious that the current political leaders of Russia, at least, and supported by a large public segment of public, frankly, they are not comfortable with the very idea of independent Ukrainian nation state next door to it. So, nothing short of undermining that nation state would satisfy. And the threat is there, and the threat will be there. We're already beginning to think like what's going to happen after this war. Like, can we, can we, you know, provide for viable models and formats for Ukrainian security going forward, like long term, strategically after this war? What can you do? Because apparently there will be, there will be continuous Russian threat. But uh, you know what's happening right now? Of course, that everyone is waiting for some offensive, maybe, on the battlefront, and uh, uh, it could be Russian offensive, it could be Ukrainian offensive. Uh, it could be offensive, like with small O, little small offensive, or a you know, tactical one, or bigger one. You don't know. You know, there are so many variables, so many things we don't know. So actually, if you sometimes hear in TV or someone uh, pundit saying, like, I would tell you exactly what's going to happen in this war. No, <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Well, you can listen, but you can. You should. You should keep in your mind that no one really knows. There are so many variables. Right? So Russia, for instance, probably trying to, to, you know getting ready for offensive. And they mobilize people. You know, mm -hmm. And they mobilize people, and those people, you know, they are not quite well equipped, not quite well trained. Uh, they are not uh, really motivated, definitely not like Ukrainians who are basically fighting for their own homes and their own families, but uh, for their own freedom. But uh, it's still a lot of people, you know, so two, three hundred thousand people, and you add them to what you already have on the battlefront, that's a lot of pressure on Ukraine even if those people are not well-trained and not well-equipped and so on. Mm -hmm. If they add even more, there's even more pressure. Ukrainian reserves, including like human reserves, are not infinite. And you're talking about asymmetric conflict by, by, by default. You know, it's a bigger country, Russia. It has much more human resources. It has natural resources. Financial, too, and that connects with natural because they're selling their gas and oil. They still do. They can actually fund this war forever. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they're probably struggling a little bit from sanctions, but they're still getting a lot of the stuff that they need to continue the war. And actually, in the last few weeks, we've been discovering again and again different stories how, how they managed to go around sanctions and get things that they need, including for production of weapons within Russia. So it's a difficult war, you know, therefore, for Ukraine, of course. It's, uh, it's, uh, we are underdog all around, you know, never changed. With all these initial cases of heroism, victories, uh, even Russian troops retreating here and there, and Ukrainian troops, uh, you know, being on offensive, it's still uh, Ukrainian underdog, of course, right? So that's a little bit about the war, where we are in the war. But why is it matter, mattering for everyone else? You know, why should it matter for anyone else? Like, what's the meaning of this war? What's the implications that we're already seeing? That's the main theme of today's presentation. So, first of all, things matter. You know, things matter like sovereignty, for instance. Like, we, that's exactly the major case about sovereignty. Can a country actually keep its sovereignty, or it would be actually bullied or infor or kind of compelled to change their course or even cease to exist by a stronger, more aggressive neighbor. It's a big issue. 
not just for Ukraine, obviously for us in this case in Ukraine, but, but around the world. You know, it's actually can have tons of precedents, and it does around the world. You have a stronger country, okay, you don't like something in a neighboring country, they're gonna attack you, you know, for no reason, basically, like this, this being the case with this war. You know, this was no major fault of Ukraine which led to that war. I also would argue that in the months coming to the war, there was hardly anything that could have been done by Ukraine or our friends here in the West to avoid the, you know, the invasion because it looks like uh, Putin made up his mind mm -hmm. a few months ago before the war that he's gonna invade no matter what. Mm -hmm. You know, there could be discussion had on that, but that's an impression most of us get. So the sovereignty, you know, the concept that we have for a long time, for centuries, you know, at least, uh, you know, since Westphalia Peace Treaty in 16, 1648, you know, that the country should have, be, should have this ability to make decisions for itself, what they're gonna do, you know, with, with itself. You know, what kind of political system should it have? What kind of ideology, you know, what kind of uh, uh, social system and so on. Uh, Ukraine is fighting for this. You know, you can call it freedom. You know, also and sometimes in a, in a specialized literature you call it autonomy, uh, meaning that ability of the country to make choices on based on their assumption of their national interests. Right. So, but that's what we're fighting for, and that's a not a meaningless term for a lot of people around the world. You know, you think that a lot of people in the world in in, in other countries they would like for their own country, with their own government, if they elect the government, the government will do something for the benefit of the nation and the state and so on, uh, being, you know, basing their decisions on their understanding of national interests and so on. Uh, that's exactly what Ukraine is fighting for. You know. So that's one thing, the sovereignty is there. Territorial integrity, well, maybe more of a vague term. You know, for a lot of people, some people would say, well, territorial integrity because, well, some borders are like questionable. Uh, maybe we can uh, rethink the borders or change the borders, something like that. So in terms of territorial integrity, maybe it's not that obvious that what Ukraine is fighting for is like, is right, a fair struggle. But to us it is. There are other people here in the US as well, it is. But to some people in the world, maybe not. Because the Russians are saying, okay, this is our land actually. It's historically our land. Putin comes out and says, basically like in all his public statements, like all the lands that we keep now in Ukraine, they kind of should have supposedly belonged to us, not to Ukraine, so some kind of a mistake. That they, that they are in Ukraine. So we're kind of correcting this thing. So to a lot of people around the world, well, maybe there's something there, we don't know. It's too much, it's complicated. <laughs> Russia and Ukraine have been at it for centuries. <laughs> so, okay, you know, maybe he's right. And uh, he's been not shy, shying away from saying that publicly. You know, that uh, there's a country like Ukraine doesn't exist. It's an aberration, historical mistake. Uh, the people of Ukraine doesn't exist. The Ukrainian culture not existing. You know, so we're gonna just probably like undo all this mis that mistake and, and change the situation and, and create a bigger space for the greater Russia, who knows? Because um, it was a, obviously an evolution for, for Russia in what they did. Uh, even during this war, which actually started, as you probably know, most of you in 2014, it's just a massive escalation since February of last year. Uh, because uh, you know, before 2014, Russia was mostly using soft power to influence Ukraine, which is like economy, information, energy, and other things, you know, working with some political forces in Ukraine and so on. Since 2014 to 2022, it was different because it was what, what they call hybrid. So you continue to use soft power, what I've just mentioned, the examples of that, and you add a little bit of military power. <coughs> like you, have, you use military in Crimea, you use Russian military, you know, and give weapons to uh, so-called separatists in, uh, in Eastern Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But since 2022, it's basically 100% hard power. So they've given up 
on like soft power. They're not trying to convince Ukrainians they're good anymore. They're not trying to convince Ukrainians we are big brothers. You know, <laughs> we, we, wish, we wish you well. Actually, you know, we are occupying you and we're destroying your cities and killing your citizens, and that's for your own good. They're not even yeah. like <laughs> really trying to do it, except that in some occasions Putin still has says, like, I'm liberating this brotherly nation of Ukraine, uh, you know, I'm trying to, you know, um, help them get rid of this kind of Nazi leaders and so on. <laughs> anyway, so that's what it is. It's sovereignty, it's <coughs> general integrity, it's also democracy. It's democracy versus a authoritarian system. Uh, you know, is it many hands struggle? Could be in some, you know, to some, yeah. Because, for instance, this administration of uh, Joe Biden, they've been uh, big on this idea of democratic societies versus authoritarian systems, and uh, that's exactly what is happening in Ukraine. Because we are not perfect democracy in Ukraine. There are problems sometimes. There are, there are some issues sometimes, challenges. There are some deviations sometimes, like we, our governments once in a while would make a step you know, that would not be democratic. But still, you know, sometimes massive democracy, imperfect and so on, but we're democracy. And that's what shows every time again and again and again, even during this war. You know, for instance, recently Zelensky said, our president, that he relieved of duty a very popular local mayor of the city of Chernihiv, you know, and that created, a, you know, kind of an outrage in the country. In the recent, uh, you know, to, uh, meeting in the court, uh, he was accompanied, that mayor, uh, by other 40 mayors of different other Ukrainian cities. That's Ukraine to you. That's democracy, you know, during the time, even. You know, some people still dare, they support the president, because wartime president, we need to be united, yes. But when he does something which is wrong, they think it's wrong, they come out and they say about it publicly. And they're not immediately sent to jail or shot at the spot. You know, that's, 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 that's democracy. We never had a monopoly on power in Ukraine. No, we never had uh, anything like that. We had two Maidans, as you know, you know, one in 2003, 2004, another 2013, 2014. So the first Orange Revolution, another one, Euromaidan, or Revolution of Dignity. So the massive popular protest movements, when people were fed up with something, when they see that major things are wrong, they go out in the street and they demand a change. So that's what, how Ukrainians are. You know, so that's, that's a real democracy to you. I mean, with this protest movement, that's actually called you know, direct democracy. You're not waiting for the government or, or the court or something to, to, to improve, to, to correct the situation. You actually take power in your own hands and you go to the street and you demand change. And, and you're there for months you know, demanding that change and waiting for it to, to, to happen. So that's, uh, that's how Ukraine is, and that's how we have a strong, vibrant civil society too, which is a big deal in democracy. Obviously, unfortunately, nothing of the sort that, you know, in Russia. So therefore, it's, a, it's also a front line in, in that respect, you know, democracy versus authoritarian system, and I'm afraid that if the war continues longer, then uh, Russia will continue its drift, uh, even, even away from authoritarian to maybe even more like totalitarian kind of a system, if that continues, all right? Uh, with Ukraine, there is also a threat, by the way, since I mentioned that, because I'm trying always to be correct. Because if you have a wartime situation as well, and you have martial law for a long time, you know, and the president might be enjoying this uh, war powers and prerogatives <laughs> and privileges that he gets under the, more, you know, the martial law, the wartime situation, so that could happen too. You know, and uh, there might be some cases of curtailing Ukrainian democracy and civil rights here and there. You know, for instance, some of them are more expected, maybe inevitable, more and more natural, like for instance, the martial law. So they limit the ability of men to leave. You know, as you probably know, most men in Ukraine in ages between 18 and 60, so that's a lot of people, uh, are not allowed to freely leave. Like I, for example, actually struggled with it, and while I was collecting all these permits to leave, to teach it here at Tufts, 
uh, and uh, that's why I lost actually months and a half of, the, of this uh, academic year. Uh, I came here late because I was struggling with the situation and all this, uh, you know, ministries and everything who are responsible for upholding martial law. So we're hoping still that, I mean, this war wouldn't change the nature of Ukrainian uh, democracy to the extent that we would be less democratic because that would be very unfortunate, you know, because it's our strong point, you know, that we are democratic. That's our strong point vis-a-vis Russia. And that's also very our, our strong feature in terms of like accepting and receiving support from our friends internationally. You know, it's probably easier and makes more sense in terms of like your values, uh, what you believe in if you're supporting a democratic country. Okay, imagine for a moment Ukraine is not democratic. Or as you know, for instance, Ukraine is, is corrupt. You have corruption in Ukraine. It would still doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter that if Russia attacks Ukraine, Ukraine should not be supported. You know what I mean? <laughs> Follow my logic. But, but if Ukraine is more democratic, you know, more resilient, with a stronger civil society, then maybe for people like living in this country or maybe in Europe, where you have this Western liberal kind of a democratic uh, system in most places, it makes more sense in terms of lay, you know, adherence to your values, you know, following your values, that you would support a country like Ukraine. So that's why it's, it's really, it really matters to us. What other things are, are, are significant here? Like international law, of course. I mean, you know, international liberal order. You know, some people say, oh, to heck with this liberal order. <laughs> and some people might not like it, even in this country. Like if you listen to the previous president of this country, for instance, he wasn't a big fan of this international order himself. He said, it's wrong. You know, <laughs> everyone's using America. You know, and, and so on, and we should change this liberal order. We probably should disrupt it. We should probably destroy it and, and put in place uh, a different type of international order, you know, something like that. So, but, uh, but still, for a lot of people, I think the idea that international law is something to be respected, to be valued, is not just the sound, it's not just rhetorics. So, when you have this army crossing you know, into Ukraine for no reason, killing people, committing war crimes, and so on, and we know more and more about these war crimes. Every time we liberate a little town, we find all these mass graves in the forest and everything. And so it's, 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 really, it's really troubling, of course. It's a tragedy, what's, what's going on. But, uh, you know, so, 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 so the international law, does it still matter or not? Are we ready to live in a jungle, like when might make right, makes right? Are we ready to this? And like, I mean, can we, can we actually, like, together, as an international community, decide that's fine, you know. This international order probably wasn't perfect. Like, let's do without international order. No order. You know, imagine like there's no there's no rules on the roads like that the, the motorists should follow anymore. Maybe people should say, okay, this these rules are not perfect. Some of them don't make sense. Some people violate them anyway. So let's do away completely with with this rules for how you behave on the road if you're, you know, driving your car. That's, is that a kind of a solution or an outcome or you know direction in which we would like to move together as international community of nations? Probably not. So therefore, that that matters too, enormously, enormously. And I should say that um, you know, in terms of implications of this war, there are so many already. It's far from being over the war. But uh, I put some of them down here, like you know, for instance, um, if you look at the at the even like post-Soviet space. You know, in our field, some people already trying not to use this term, but I still use it. <laughs> uh, to me, it simplifies you know, what you're referring to. There's probably still some, something like called post-Soviet Eurasia, post-Soviet space. Uh, uh, if you look at it, uh, everyone is affected. 
everyone is affected. I mean, clearly, besides Ukraine and Russia, you know, Belarus basically <laughs> taken over by Russia. You know, we can't say there's no sovereignty anymore. You know, we, you can even go as far as say like there is no state called Belarus de facto. You know, it's basically taken uh, Russia by, by Russia uh, by Russia, under Russian control. Further on, like in Baltics, clearly <laughs> terrified about what Russia might do next. Right? That's something we need to keep in mind. You know, that's why this war is really uh, important. You know, like that's why a lot of countries like uh, Baltics, like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Poland, and Romania, and some others, and Czechs, you know, that's why they care so much about this war and they demand all the time support Ukraine. Because in addition to values, they also outrage for what they're seeing in Ukraine. Yes, it's also interest for them. So they understand they're next. You know, you know I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. You know, Ukraine is a major buffer state. So right now, Russia is struggling with Ukraine, getting weaker, weakening, weakening always militarily in Ukraine for 11 months now, becoming less of a threat. The threat deflates to a large extent. All Rus Russian threats to other countries in the region, you know, they are becoming a bit of a hollow now because everyone is seeing how mightily Russia is struggling with Ukraine. So maybe they're not capable anymore of striking, say, Estonia or Romania or Czech Republic or something. You know, so therefore, for them, it's, it's, it's really important. But in the post-Soviet space, sure, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, like Lithuania or Latvia, they, they say, like, we're going we're gonna, to, we'll be fine by giving all of our weapons to Ukraine. Let Ukrainians use it right now in this war. And that would be a higher chance for us to be fine in the future. But Moldova, you know, next door to my hometown of Odessa, small country, Moldova. When Russians were moving along the Black Sea coast in the first days and weeks of this massive war, Everyone was expected for them to go all the way to Moldova. And some Russian generals actually said, yeah, that's, a, that's one of the objectives. <laughs> We're going to get there to Transnistria, the breakaway region, pro-Russian breakaway region there in the southeastern Moldova. We're going to take it over. And um, a lot of people, including myself, we, we thought that they were going to take over Moldova, frankly. Because, and, and everyone was terrified. Like, what are you going to do about that? <laughs> because, I mean, of course, Ukraine is weaker than Russia in many respects, but it's a big country. We have what we call in the field strategic depth, so we can actually retreat a little bit, you know, re you know re reconfigure our forces and then come back and fight more and so on. But Moldova doesn't, you know, it's a really small country, it's smaller than my, uh, uh, well, basically the same size, so it was my hometown uh, region of Odessa. So, and uh, everyone was terrified, Romanians were terrified because of course they have a very strong personal bond with Romania, like what are they going to do? If, if Russian troops appear and come into Moldova, what would Romania do? And Romania, of course, already is a different story because it's a member of the UN NATO. So what if Russian troops come to Moldova and then Romanians decide they, they need to, to, you know, to defend Moldova with their troops? And that means a NATO country coming into this war directly. But therefore now Moldova is kind of spared and, and, you know, from that scenario. And anywhere you go, you know, basically in the South Caucasus, for instance, Georgian government, it's a different case. Uh, Georgian people is very pro-Ukrainian. We've been together for many years. There was a lot of sympathy for Georgia and Ukraine, and vice versa in Georgia, uh, in Ukraine, and uh, in Ukraine for Georgia. So, but with the government, it's a different story. They're very careful. You know, they're very, you know, they're treading very carefully uh, by not trying to provoke Russia into some kind of uh, aggression against Georgia, because already two regions are controlled, frankly, by Georgia, by Russia in Georgia, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So. Uh, the government just doesn't want to help Ukraine at all, even like rhetorically. No weapons, nothing. And eagerly accepting Russian refugees in Georgia and so on, uh, which creates a lot of tension within Georgian society because, like I said, most, most uh, ordinary Georgians are very pro-Ukrainian. The government has taken a different role. And that's, uh, you know, but they are afraid. 
On the one hand, they are afraid. If Russia is doing this to Ukraine, to small Georgia, of course they can do it, you know, easily. They did it in 2008, you know, and they went all the way you know, almost to Tbilisi, to the capital, you know. Wow. But uh, they can do it again. On the other hand, if Russia really weakens, you know, then we might uh, have a situation when Georgia might have a chance to restore its territorial integrity, evicting Russia from South Ossetia and Abkhazia. That's a possibility too. So you talk about implications of this war, how this war is changing. Of course, we don't know how it's going to end right now. Uh, when it's going to end is also very important, you know, like in a month or in like in two or three years. Like, you know, so it's important. Those variables, like I mentioned, that we don't know. Uh, but, and they would, of course, impact the situation around, around this region. But at the same time, they are already changing the region. Or let's get further east to the uh, post-Soviet uh, Central Asia, right? Or South Asia, post-Soviet South Asia for that matter. A uh, bunch of basically countries who have been usually Russian uh, clients, the clientele, very depending on Russia, uh, very loyal in many respects to Russia, <coughs> never ever raising their voice against like what Moscow Putin says. Right now, there's a backlash there. You know, first of all, the people understand like, okay, what Russia is doing to Ukraine is wrong. You know, second of all, they see their little collective security treaty organization. That's how it's called, a little block, a security block they have, collective security treaty organization (CSTO) uh, as a completely hollow, empty. It's not capable of doing anything. You know, and 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 and, and most of all, they think Russia is weaker, so they can talk back. Well, what happened <laughs> in last year? There have been a bunch of meetings when you have presidents of those uh, countries in the region uh, speaking to Putin in such a tone that would never ever appear in their conversations in the last 20 years since he was in power. Why? Because they're seeing that, well, Russia is not that almighty anymore. You can actually allow yourself to, to do it. Russia is so involved, engaged with fighting Ukraine and will be involved and engaged with fighting mm -hmm. Ukraine that it might just not have enough resources to punish anyone for lack of loyalty in the post-Soviet space. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Look at the Azerbaijan-Armenia situation. You know, Azerbaijan is basically, you know, well, it, it, it won the major round of the war against Armenia even before the, this Russian massive war against Ukraine. But right now they're also using this situation that, you know, Russia is preoccupied with Ukraine, you know. So Russia is probably not capable to help its uh, historical ally Armenian region. And Armenia surrounded by this, uh, you know, adversaries, one Azerbaijan, another Turkey supporting Azerbaijan, uh, is kind of doomed. So they probably have to, you know, go along to whatever Azerbaijan would demand from them. That's another of those implications of this ongoing war. You know? And when Russia is weaker, uh, you know, it's not that threatening, I mean, threatening rhetorically, but, but not with actual tools and levers that they have in their hands, you know what I mean? So that's another thing. And if you go outside of, 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 of the post-Soviet space, Everything's changing, like with China. That's an interesting scenario, of course, because for this country, you know, formally in your like national security strategy and other papers, you have like China and Russia both as like problems. <laughs> you know, Russia is actually called uh, like acute current threat. Uh, China is more like a challenge, an adversary. You know, President Biden himself actually, when he publicly speaks about China, he prefers to say it's, it's a challenge. All right, so it's a complicated relationship, of course. But uh, Russia and China, uh, they've been close rhetorically at least propaganda in terms of propaganda in terms of fighting like uh, America led world uh, you know fighting for this multipolar war they said where you don't have one hegemon being United States uh, and actually as you probably remember some of you in this room uh, Putin actually went to China uh, shortly before starting this massive war against Ukraine 
a very rare thing for both of Putin and Xi uh, to meet because they were actually both very afraid of COVID, so we're not really coming out too much out of their respective bunkers. But they met and they've signed a strategic partnership treaty, this huge paper where it said Russia-Chinese uh, partnership doesn't have any limit. You know, it's limitless, it's indefinite, you know. We're, you know, we are, we are always together. But no one was fooled even when that happened. But now you, you see that China, is in terms of propaganda, rhetorics, they still say, well, Russia is in right, defending itself against the threat. So the, the, the default for the war is in the NATO and the West and so on, uh, without actually accusing Ukraine, fortunately. And actually, China actually worked with Ukraine very actively and, and, and uh, invested a lot of money in Ukraine before the war. But at the same time, China is not breaking any red lines. You know, they're not trying to violate sanctions. They're trying to distance themselves from the war. There are many reasons to believe that, well, this uh, Russia-Chinese relationship might be restored by Beijing after the war. For instance, like, again, uh, you know, it, would, it would depend on if Russia emerges victorious, let's hope no, or even more weakened and uh, defeated even more than now. Uh, you know, Beijing would look, you know, really closely. Like, do we need this ally? Is this really helping us or not? You know, is it, is it worthy to actually invest some of our energy and attention into Russia? Because China actually needs those allies, and Russia even more so, because there are not too many countries, influential countries, that can, that can, that can help, that can help uh, Russia right now. Of course, if China, you know, God forbid, changes its position and they start giving Russia weapons with which Russia would attack, continue to attack Ukraine, that would be a really difficult situation for Ukraine. That would really, you know, upend the correlation of forces. Uh, on the front line, but they're not doing it, and uh, there are reasons to believe they're not liking this war at all. You know, because also they actually their formal diplomacy is based on the idea like oh peace, not war. You know, territorial integrity. You know, diplomacy first of all. Uh, you know, and also they are suffering from uh, from the whole destabilization, economic destabilization created by the war, because they're such a great big economy. So therefore, they don't like the long war. The longer war runs, uh, the more problematic it becomes with, for China. Uh, also for this matter, for this reason that uh, China uh, is not really, really, really afraid of this volatility of markets and everything uh, when a war like this is happening. And of course, uh, if, you, if there is any possibility that Russia might, uh, again, God forbid, to use uh, nuclear weapons or any other weapons of mass, mass destruction against Ukraine, well, the Chinese said out loud, we wouldn't like it. You know, it's absolutely unacceptable. India said the same thing. Another country which is kind of sitting on the fence and trying, you know, to distance itself from, from the war, but, uh, but they said uh, out loud, you know, of course. And there was this meeting, famous meeting, where both Xi and Modi, Prime Minister of, of, of India, were in, 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 in presence. And some of you might have known and on the video, on the tape, on the record, they're actually saying these things. Like, we told you, Mr. Putin, we don't like this war. You better stop this war. <laughs> you know, and, and then later on, they actually said out loud, no, 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 no nuclear weapons. You know. So that's uh, quite telling. Again, you know, that's another major implication there. And uh, maybe finally, a couple of thoughts uh, to conclude, because uh, we should have uh, enough time, of course, for Q&A. But uh, with the European Union, for instance, it's another player. You know? We just talked to, you know, uh, to, to Tim, our colleague here, uh, before the talk uh, about the European Union and what role he might, uh, she might, uh, not he and she, it might play uh, in, a, in the world uh, uh, after the war. Uh, would it be increased role or not? Can the European Union actually become a major player in international affairs and security and defense realm or not? You know, because actually, on one hand, I'm still doubtful and pessimistic and skeptical about uh, EU being a robust, viable, <laughs> effective security player. You know, in a sense like US can be, or NATO can be, or, or Russia can be, for that matter. 
but at the same time, yeah, I'm looking here, this is because you're an EU person, you're a Spanish person, so yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, EU's been really impressive in terms of what they did through the 11 months of this war. Just look at it, you know, in terms of like f f f uh, hosting Ukrainian refugees, big deal. Mostly local governments and the national governments, but the EU is, of course, part of the process. Uh, you know, cutting drastically their dependence on the Russian energy supply, quickly, like with an on the fly, really. Of course, not zero. No, no one can cut. Uh, you know, in Europe they can't cut their dependence on Russian energy supply to zero within 11 months. No, definitely not natural gas. You know, so uh, thinking seriously about diversification, finally, you know, which was a available choice for them all, all along, all this time. You know, like, okay, Norway can produce more. Oh, yeah, of course. Suddenly, we remember that something is Northern, in Northern Africa. They have to, to provide us with, with their resources and so on. Uh, being really tough rhetorically. You know, if, if there is a lot of frustration sometimes with, say, Chancellor Schultz, uh, there is a lot of excitement, actually, with another German politician who is running a European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, you know, who is really strong leader appearing as a coming up, uh, coming out from the situation as a really strong leader in terms of rhetorics, but also actual things and policies. Uh, supporting Ukraine, obviously, even giving money to you, for to Ukraine to buy weapons. Think about it. Whoever knows a thing or two about European Union for the last like 10, 20, 30 years. All right. It's so unusual, so out of character. You know, that's really a revolution. You know, thinking about uh, this uh, change, I don't know German, but the, the turn the Germans are thinking about, their role in Europe and so on. But think about the European Union, the country which was always, I mean, the Union which was always a structure, the agency which was always very careful, reserved, always about soft security. So we can give you money to the, for reforms, for instance, or something like that, but give the country money to Ukraine to buy weapons. And that's already something like three billion. And that's not counting contributions by member states, that's just from a general European Union budget. So that's, that, that's, 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 that's insane, you know, that, that's a lot of changes for European Union as well. We'll see what, how it emerges after this war. NATO, of course, reinforced, really like, uh, you know, really reinforced, really understanding now what it's there for. You know, and a lot of people, of course, are relaxed even to some, just, uh, frankly speaking, to some extent because like, uh, okay, we're finally back to this old Cold War. Uh, we kind of knew how it was and uh, what to do, and we know our roles, and we're back to it. You know, because there's another major threat for the continent, you know, not just for Ukraine. Then was Soviet, now it's Russia, right? So, but uh, definitely reinforcing the eastern flank of NATO. You know, definitely doing a lot of things. Definitely helping Ukraine. I mean, can Ukraine be invited into NATO? Probably not, because of Russian opinion on this issue, uh, primarily. But uh, there is a, a lot of interaction. You know, between Ukraine and NATO, unprecedented, absolutely. In in a way, Ukraine is receiving more of assistance from NATO than uh, a whole bunch of member states which are already in NATO. You know what I mean? In terms of weapons being given to Ukraine, the contemporary NATO weapons. So a lot of countries who joined NATO earlier, they spend like years and years on getting those weapons, on training on those weapons, on integrating those weapons into their military. Ukraine is doing all this now within like weeks and months. We don't have a luxury of spending more time. So therefore, we are having this, as military say, interoperability in many respects with NATO. At least it's increasing quickly. You know, so that's changing a lot, the, the whole correlation of forces you know, and the whole situation there uh, you know, with, with NATO. You know, and uh, uh, I think there are people who are understanding this uh, here in the, this administration 
Uh, well, in terms of uh, objectives for the United States in this war, there is a number. I mean, I think values are involved, interests are involved as well. Uh, back the last spring, uh, when the Secretary of Defense, Austin, uh, said actually that our purpose is to weaken Russia, he was uh, criticized, and the administration walked back this uh, remark. But I think he, he told the truth, and that's exactly what they're thinking about, and that's, that's, a, that's the right objective. Sometimes people say, uh, Biden administration doesn't have a strategy for this war. They do. That's exactly what it is, he, because a full quote from Secretary Austin is, we need to weaken Russia to the extent that it ceases to be a threat for the countries in the region. That's what you're trying to do. So you're not trying to defeat Russia, like to humiliate Russia, to disintegrate Russia. You know, you're not trying to, you know, to to uh, have like a victory parade of Ukrainian American troops in the Red Square. Nothing of that sort. You know, right? You're just trying to weaken it to the point that they are toothless. They don't have, you know, they don't have this anymore in them. They don't have those pangs to grab and attack, you know, and bite. You know, countries and peoples uh, around them. That's that's a decent strategy to me, you know, and that's very realistic and it's kind of minimalistic too. You know, you can you can try and work to it, and then that's why you reassess. That's why you think, okay, maybe these weapons are not needed. But a month later, you see our situation is changing. Okay, maybe we should give Ukraine this another different type of weapons. <laughs> that's because you're constantly tactically reassessing situation on the battleground in accordance to that stated goal, which is very reasonable. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing hypocritical about it. Yeah, you just try to make this country, which is so aggressive to its neighbor, uh, you know, less aggressive, or at least having less of the opportunity and capacity to harm to harm others. You know, and uh, and finally, the the global effect. I mean, uh, think about it. Uh, we all heard about the global food crisis. Maybe uh, you know, we never. I, I should tell you, in Ukraine, we never ever knew that we're actually producing so much agricultural products <laughs> that are being used around the world. Like, I never knew, I can tell you. And now, and now, oh my God, because my hometown of Odessa and other ports of Ukraine on the Black Sea being blockaded for months, people from like, I don't know, Eritrea, Ethiopia to Sri Lanka and around so the world, they, they don't have enough like food, wheat and bread and, and sunflower oil and so on. And, and uh, it's incredible. If you add to it, of course, the troubles that Russia has with you know, selling their agricultural products, and those are two major producers of agricultural products, Russia and Ukraine, uh, then of course you understand the situation. Therefore, you had a grain deal, which is still in place, you know, because be between February and July of last year, you had a complete blockade of Ukrainian uh, uh, Black Sea coast. Uh, you had mines in the sea, you had Russian Navy. You know, when 20, February 24, actually blockade was established, also a lot of people tend to not know about it. Even before February 24th, mm -hmm. Russia started the blockade of those ports before the start of this massive invasion. And they really enforced it, you know, because there were like 100 ships from various countries in those ports on February 24th. Some of them tried to leave. They were prevented from doing this by force. Some been shelled. One got sank, you know, by Russian battleships. Mm -hmm. So, but then of course, uh, okay, good. Since uh, July 23rd, I think that's the date of last year, we have a grain deal. So. Basically, it's very important to Ukraine. It's very important to, to Russia too, because they actually can now have they have some sanctions isn't on their agricultural export uh, to UN, which was involved. That's another thing. It's another surprise for a lot of us that UN is not completely helpless <laughs> <laughs> and, and futile. They actually do things. Okay, so Mr. Gutierrez uh, eagerly came there to Turkey and negotiated uh, with uh, you know with uh, Turkish counterparts and Russians and Ukrainians delegations there. Uh, this grain deal, 
uh, and that's why you know the UN is really happy about it. They can pat themselves on the back. Uh, and, and Turkey, of course, too, you know, very much involved and still harboring this uh, idea of uh, maybe playing a major mediation role between Ukraine and Russia at some point in this war, uh, which would boast enormously the, the prestige and, uh, and you know and influence of this country in the region. And of course, Erdogan personally too, you know, he would emerge as a major like victor if he was be would be successful successful mediator in stopping this big war. So. As, you, as you've noticed, I can probably go for another hour easily <laughs> in terms of uh, why this war matters and what kind of implications are we seeing in this war, but uh, we should definitely stop and I'm, I'm, I'm eager to you know, have your questions or your comments or your remarks. Thank you.